Good morning. Well, this morning we're looking at uh, Jesus' letter to the church in Pergamum. Uh, we've been going through the list of letters in the book of Revelation uh, in chapters 2 and 3. This is our third week, so we've dealt with Ephesus, we've dealt with Smyrna, uh, which if I ever lived in a city, Smyrna, it just like sounds evil, doesn't it? I always, it sounds like it should be like a, in Lord of the Rings or something. Uh, but today we're looking at Pergamum, uh, and before we get to that text today, there is a, a reference that Jesus makes in the text uh, to an individual that warrants some of our attention, and I think it's a good introduction to look at the story of this person, because it sets up for us kind of what this passage really is going to be all about. But if you skip over the book, if you just kind of read Pergamum really quickly, you might miss what's going on. Uh, and Jesus references a guy by the name of Balaam, or some people would say Balaam. Uh, it is Balaam. But uh, you, you might have heard it, if, if his name is unfamiliar to you, maybe you've heard it in the context of Balaam's donkey. Right? Many of you might have heard at least reference the story of Balaam's donkey in scripture. Uh, I have a professor in college who loved the story because, you know, he was a proper man who never once would say a cuss word, but every once in a while he would drop A-S-S, and whenever he did that, you know, we would look at him like, wow, like a distinguished, and he would always excuse himself by saying he was talking about Balaam's donkey, uh, and that was his way of getting out of, out of the language that he would use in a lecture every once in a while. But who was Balaam? Uh, Jesus will mention in our passage for today his teaching, the teaching of Balaam, Balaam. So who is this guy? Well, Balaam shows up in the late chapters of Numbers, around the 25 to 31. He comes and goes there, uh, and is introduced as a prophet. Um, there was a king by the name of Balak, do not confuse them, Balak, king, Balaam, prophet, uh, and Balak was the king of Moab. And so as the Israelites were wandering through the desert in their 40 years, they would, uh, towards the end of that, they would come up against the kingdom, and Moab was one of the places that they would come towards. And Balak the king saw the number of the Israelites, and he was terrified that they might conquer and overcome him. And so he sent for Balaam as a prophet to come and send him to curse Israel, thinking that might stop things. And so Balaam uh, is, is kind of set to oblige, but the Lord speaks to Balaam and tells him not to go, and so he refuses until Balak compels him in some way to go. And so on the road, um, Balaam is on his way to curse the Israelites, <clears throat> and the Lord tries to stop him. He tells him, listen, you can go, but when you get there, you can only speak the words that I give to you, to Israel, not anything you want to say. So he's like, listen, you can go there, but you're not going to be able to say what you want to say. You're only going to be able to say what I tell you. Right? And, and he kind of ignores him. And so Balaam's, Balaam's donkey that he's riding on stops all the time. He has these like, successive times where the donkey refuses to go on um, because the Lord is ready to slay Balaam, but the donkey kind of saves his, his butt in a way. And after the third time, he kind of gets mad and is, is yelling at the donkey, and, and, and the Lord enables the donkey to speak to Balaam. Now imagine if you're riding a donkey to go to a town, Right, and all of a sudden, you're like, why aren't you walking? And the donkey turns around and says, listen, it's because the Lord won't let me. Like, right? So he's terrified, and he gets to Israel, and like he said, all he can do is tell them what the Lord allows him to say, and the words that God puts in his mouth are blessings. And so instead of cursing Israel, 
Balaam blesses Israel. And when he comes back to Balak and asks for payment for the job, uh, Balak refuses to give him that payment because he didn't do what he was supposed to do. And so that's the story of Balaam. And so when Jesus says, what's the teaching? Like, what's, he says, referencing Balaam's teaching. Where's the lesson in this? Well, Balaam has a little bit of a shady underside, right? That's the main story of him. But what he did, his contribution to the Old Testament, really, was that he gave King Balak a strategy to defeat the Israelites, a way to go about getting at them that was far less direct than waging war. And here was his strategy. He said, Balak, what you should do is you should take the Moabite women, take the pretty ones, and you should use them to seduce the Israelite men. Don't wage war. Come in peace. Come in gentleness. Come in love. And have your women seduce the men and slowly turn themselves over to the idolatry and the sexual immorality that they're against. And so that's what happened. The Moabite women came and they met the men, intermarried with them, and the Israelites started to be fond of these women and intermarried with them and slowly started to adopt certain rituals and customs that were pagan in nature, went against the Lord. They started to get involved in sexual immorality of various kinds because that's what they saw Moabite culture doing, and they caved and they compromised with the Moabite women. Because I don't care how upstanding of a man you are, when she's pretty, you compromise, right? That's what happened there. And so the teaching of Balaam is not so much a doctrine, but a way that the church kind of caved in the time of the Israelites. And so this passage today is about a whole lot of things, but one of the things it's about is compromise. It worked. The key to Balaam's strategy is that it was tremendously effective. It almost destroyed the people of God from within. Right? It's the long-haul strategy. It's not the siege. It's not the war, but it's the marathon. Right? They didn't break, but they slowly bent through compromise. In our text today, Jesus brings this Old Testament figure up again, and he does it to make an important point about Pergamum's church and our circumstance. The people of Israel compromised, and here in Pergamum it was happening again. So let's take a look at the small but rich letter to the church in Pergamum as we stand together for the reading of God's word. This is from Revelation 2, chapters 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum writes... The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some here who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. 
And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Now before we talk about this compromise, let's look at some context of Pergamum. Um, There's some similarities between Smyrna and Pergamum, but it's the way that it's set up that are a little different. Um, In Smyrna, last week we talked about how there was immense persecution because the pockets of Jews were stirring up trouble for the Christians, right? It was in some ways a religious war that the Romans were used as kind of a sword in the middle of it to carry out the Jews' duty. Pergamum is, is very different. If you were a Christian in this time frame, other than Rome itself... Pergamum would be the last place on earth you would want to be, right? If you were a Christian, picture being a Christian today in like Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, some of the worst, top five worst places to be a Christian where it's a crime that is punishable by death, right? You do not want to find yourself as a Christian in Pergamum. Why? Pergamum was the center of the Roman idol cult, the worship of the gods of Rome, of Caesar. It was the center of it in Asia. If you think about the Roman Empire, if if the bastion, if if the central place of, of all things Rome was Rome itself, right, in the West, Pergamum was the Rome of the East. You think about an empire as vast as Rome stretches so large, you have to have more than just one central hub to be able to cover that much ground. And so Pergamum was established as the center, as the hub of Rome, of the empire, on the eastern side of the empire. And so it ruled, out of Pergamum, Rome ruled all of Asia that it had conquered at the time. It was the religious center for Rome. It was the, the cult worship center for Rome. It had temples to Zeus, to Athene, to Dionysius, to Asclepius. All the major gods of the Roman Empire, temples were erected there and worship happened there. And so Jesus begins by acknowledging this tough position that the Christians there are in. He says, listen, I know where you dwell. What does he call it? He calls it Satan's throne. Last year, or last, last week, we talked about Jesus in Smyrna calling the Jews a synagogue of Satan. Here, it's Satan's throne. If you want to know the two places in that time that Satan was enthroned, according to Jesus, that he was the ruler of that place, it's Rome and it's Pergamum. And so you didn't want to be a Christian there. And he acknowledges it. He said, listen, in the face of all of this, in this hardship, in the hardest place to follow me, probably on earth, other than Rome itself, you have held fast. You've held strong. And he commends them for it. He says, listen, even in the days of Antipas, right? What does it say? Even in the days of Antipas, you have held fast. My faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Who is Antipas? We know nothing about him, from Scripture at least, other than this passage. So we know that he was a faithful witness in Pergamum, and we know from Scripture, from from Jesus, that he was killed by the the people of Pergamum, presumably for being a faithful witness. 
But we look at other texts during this time, if we look at non-scriptural, so take this with a grain of salt, but if we look at historical texts or we look at documents of kind of the Eastern church of this time, we learn a little bit more about Antipas. Antipas is most likely the leader of the Christian church, or was the leader of the Christian church in Pergamum. He was their head guy. He was the public figure. And so his death would have meant a great deal to the people of Christ. How was he killed? Well, the legend has it that he was boiled in what they essentially dub as a torture bull. And I got a picture of this. This is not for the faint of heart. Romans knew how to kill. Like, you didn't just stab a guy in Rome. They knew how to do it and do it right. And so they would have this bronze bull, and they would put person in it. They have a little latch. They put them in there, and then they'd light a fire underneath, and they would roast the person alive inside the bull. And they would have a trumpet kind of contraption inside that would amplify the screams of the person. So it looked like while they were being roasted alive, the bull was screaming. And the people would cheer as the bull screamed. And the person inside slowly, over the course of hours, roasted to death. It was gruesome. And the Christian church watched their leader die in this way. And they still held fast. Wow. I don't know about you, if I was a part of a church and I saw my pastor get roasted in a bowl of bronze, I don't know if I'd stay around to see what happens next. Right? But they are, they're faithful. And so things were rough and Jesus commends them for it. And we get one final glimpse of the hardship of Christians in the opening verse of the text. Remember I told you that in each letter Jesus introduces himself in a way that is applicable to the people that he's writing to. Well here... He's introducing himself to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. And he says it twice. He mentions his sword of the mouth again later. This is the only letter where he talks about himself as having the sword, the double-edged, the two-edged, sharp, two-edged sword, or the sword out of his mouth. And so why would he use the sword imagery here? Well, it goes to Roman context within the city of Pergamum. In Pergamum, they had a leader that was installed that they called the proconsul. And Pergamum was unique from any other city that Rome occupied. Um, in Rome, there was a law that any person who was a Roman citizen, when accused of a crime, especially one that would involve death, he could appeal to Caesar. Right? Paul actually does this. Right? Paul's arrested, and rather than being tried in Jerusalem, he is a Roman citizen, appeals to Caesar, and so he gets to go be where Caesar is, and he gets to go stand before him. That's how he gets to Rome, right? And he's not trying to get out of it, but he goes there so that he can proclaim the gospel in Rome. But there was a rule. You could appeal to Caesar. They didn't have the authority to blindly execute people in, any, in the Roman cities for crimes. And so in Pergamum, the proconsul uniquely had received from Caesar what they call the right of the sword. The proconsul in Pergamum could execute at will without having to go to Rome for approval. The Pergamum proconsul had the right of the sword. He could kill anyone he wished for whatever reason he wished, and he never had to go to Rome to home base for permission. He was entrusted with that level of authority. And so for the Christians, that was a death sentence because no one had the ability to appeal to Rome. If Pergamum's proconsul wanted you dead, you were dead. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He had the right of the sword. And so Jesus introduces himself 
by saying that I am the one with the double, with the sharp two-edged sword. And so he's saying to the Christians, listen, take heart. I don't care that he has the right of the sword. There's only one authority on earth that decides who lives and dies. And it's not him. It's me. It's your Savior. He can cut you into a thousand pieces. You don't die unless I say you die. And so he's encouraging the people of Pergamum. He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how how things are dire. It doesn't matter how easily killed you might be in this place. It doesn't matter if the proconsul cuts you into pieces. You are safe with me. The only sword you ought to be paying attention to and worried about is my sword. And I will wield it with perfect justice. I will be the judge. And I am the one that you're worried about. Right? That's what the Lord has to say to those who are being persecuted. The proconsul doesn't decide who lives and dies. I do. And Jesus is reminding them of who's in charge. Right? Author James Hamilton observes this well. This is about how we should live in light of our faith. To deny the faith in the face of death would be to declare that one believes... Life in the here and now is better than Jesus. Better than having the life he promises, which cannot be defeated by death. By holding to Jesus' name and not denying the faith, even when Antipas was killed for the faith, the Christians in Pergamum declare that Jesus is better than life. And they do it well. That's why Jesus commends them. He says, look... When you're faced with death as a Christian is when you most see the substance of your faith. And when you're faced with death and you still hold fast and you still stay the course and you still obey and you still walk in the light of my path, what you're saying is this life doesn't matter as much as Jesus. First, Jesus has us and he cannot be touched. And second, it sends a message to the world that is better than life. When you are persecuted for your faith, even unto death, and you hold fast, and people ask you, why on earth would you stick it out in the midst of your pain and your struggle and your hurt and the threats against your life? And you say, because whatever he has is better. This life is, isn't, isn't useful to me in comparison of what he offers. Right? That's what suffering well in the midst of persecution actually says to the world. He says, listen, I don't care how much you come at me. I, I, I serve a God who has a life in store for me that is better than this. Take it. I don't care. Right? When we shy away and we abandon the gospel, what we're saying subtly without saying it is that the life that we have, we really believe is better than the one that God could offer us. Right? And so he commends them for holding fast. Do you believe this? I'm not saying that you're certainly going to face death for your faith. Not everybody in this room will face death for their faith. Some of you might, but not everybody will. But are you ready? If you did, do you actually believe that the life that Jesus has for you in store on the other side is better than the life you have now? Or do you like the comfort of the now? And when push comes to shove... Will you walk away? Are you willing to trade the one for the other? As we move into a context where we're increasingly despised for our faith, I think this is a question that we all ought to wrestle with because it is relevant to us. Maybe not unto death, 
but to persecution. We do struggle and we do suffer. And so the people of Pergamum have this right. They're willing to die and God commends them for it and praises them. But yet he says that he has some things against them. <clears throat> we have the compliment sandwich. And the things he has against them are that they hold, they have some in their midst who hold to the teaching of Balaam and some in the midst who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And when we dissect the language of these critiques, one of the things we see in, in Greek linguistics is that he's not saying that there are Balaam followers over here and Nicolaitan followers over here in the time of Pergamum. He's doing what's like a comparative literature analysis. He's going back, he's saying, look, the, the, the Balaam teaching followers are the same as the Nicolaitans. Saying, listen, just like they were doing in the Old Testament during the time of the wilderness wanderings, so the Nicolaitans are doing today, right? And so there's, there's no two following groups here. It's, it's, it's the Nicolaitans. And man, Jesus hates on the Nicolaitans. There are few groups that Jesus hates, right? Even when he calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers, he doesn't say he hates them. But man, the Nicolaitans, he hates hates. When Jesus says, I hate you to a group of people, we really ought to pay attention to that group of people and what they're doing. So what are they doing specifically? What are the teaching of the Nicolaitans? There's two things that help us. Number one, the Greek language helps us. Uh, Nicolaitans is, a, is a, a combination of two different words in the Greek language. The first is nikos, which means to conquer or to subdue. And the second is laos, which is people. Right? And so Nicolas, Nicolaitans, Nikolai, is, a, is one who conquers or subdues the people. That's what the name literally means. And so the teaching of the Nicolaitans is a teaching that slowly will conquer or subdue the people of God. Right? So from the language, from the very word itself of the, of the followers, we get an idea of what this teaching is doing to the people of God in Pergamum and all around. The second is, we mentioned it briefly last week, historically, the, the origin of Nicolaitans comes from Nicolaus, who was one of the ordained deacons in Acts 6. Right? In Acts 6, verse 5, we're given the names of all of those that were ordained as deacons, and Nicholas is one of them. Nicholas's background is that of a pagan background. He was a, a pagan idol worshiper before he became a Jew and then eventually you know, became a Jewish faith follower. And then after the death and crucifixion and, and, and resurrection of Christ, he became a Christian. And so he has switched his faith a couple times. But when he switches his faith, he carries old in with the new, right? He's got the baby and the bathwater together. And so the teachings of the Nicolaitans were all about faith compromise, you can become a Christian and you don't have to shed all of the old idolatry and practices that you partake in. As a matter of fact, it's good as a Christian to partake in some of these things. Because after all, don't we want to be in the world? We want to be witnesses. We need to immerse ourselves in the culture and we need to participate in it as much as possible. And so you can be a Christian and believe that, but you can also participate in the Roman cult worship or the things that Caesar demands of you. Right? Nicolaitans were a faith, a teaching of compromise for the people of God. And to a person who is in Pergamum suffering, this is a really, really attractive proposition. Because the more you can be a Christian in Pergamum, but look like a citizen of Pergamum, the less likely you are to die. 
And so let's do it. Let's compromise away. We can almost forgive the people of the city of Pergamum under Christ for, for starting to compromise. You almost have a sympathy for these groups, right? We, we want to denounce them as evil, but man, I can't tell you if I wasn't in Pergamum, if I wouldn't have been one of the Nicolaitans. I hope not, but I don't know, right? Because man, what if I just compromise a little bit? What if I just talk about my faith a little less in the public sphere? What if I just keep quiet about what I believe? If I keep that at home, when I'm out here, I look just like one of the people. Right? After all, I mean, just because I went to the feast to the god of Zeus or whatever doesn't mean that I actually worship him. I just went because everybody else went. And it's a good thing to go and be a part of these things. Maybe I have a chance to be a witness there. Right? And so that's what the Nicolaitans were. They were a faith of people that compromised. And that's why Jesus compares them to the teaching of Balaam, because that's how the faith faltered in that time. The people compromised for the women until they slowly eroded from within and almost eroded to nothing. And that's what we have here. And that's why Jesus hates them. Oh, he hates them. It's the second major point of the passage for us today, and this truth still holds true for us today. Compromise slowly kills the church and its people. It's subtle and it takes a while, but it will erode us. It will erode you as an individual and it will erode the church. Right? Remember the chiastic structure of the letters we talked about last week? Right? The, the middle three letters, this being the first, are a progression. Right? In, this, in Pergamum we have false teaching. Then when we get to Thyatira we have false teaching and practice. And then by the time we get to Sardis, what does Jesus say about the church? They are dead. That's why it's the main point of all the letters. It's trying to show us a progression. We might think that certain compromises are innocent. But they grow and they fester. And if we compromise once, we'll do it again and again and again and more and more and more. And the more we do it, the more comfortable we get in it until eventually our faith erodes to where there's nothing left. Right? We see this today. If you ever have the chance, I would encourage you, please promise that if you go into one of these, you'll meet with me after. But if you ever have the opportunity to attend a universalist church, please go and just see it. It's a church that gathers around the belief in really nothing. You can believe whatever you want. Why have a church? I got to tell you, if, if I don't believe what we believe here, this is a pretty boring enterprise. We have some wonderful, talented people singing in this church, but none of them are, are good enough to have you just come and listen. Just to come. Right? I can find you a better concert than listening to me sing. Trust me. I can find you a better concert with people in this room than me singing. Right? I can find you a more interesting guy to listen to than me. There's some great TED Talks out there. If we're not about the belief of what, what, what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ, this is a weird thing to come to. Why be part of a church? Right? We compromise away slowly, and we'll see over the next few weeks what the progression of that means. The church has made so many decisions based on popular culture today. We're afraid to speak truth in the public sphere. We're afraid to even call out our own brothers and sisters for the things that are sinful in our lives. We know people, Christians, brothers, sisters, 
They're walking down paths they shouldn't. But you're afraid to call them out. Why? Because it's not loving. And so we compromise. Kind of let them be. Let alone to speak truth to the world that is outside. What do we do? We compromise. We allow things to go on. We allow things to go on in our families. We allow things to go on in our churches. We allow there to be compromise because we just want to keep the peace. Right? No. We're afraid. And so we compromise. Again, Hamilton has a great observation on this one. As a body of believers, we have to be theologically and culturally sensitive enough to recognize when someone is teaching us to minimize sin, to avoid too much talk about who God is or what the Bible says, and to enjoy the good life here in America. This kind of thing is not what we need. Jesus is often at odds with his opposition. He feuds with the religious leaders and the government authorities, as we talked about. But man, he hates the Nicolaitans. He hates them so much, he mentions it over and over again in Scripture. He says it twice, just in Revelation 2. He'll reiterate it later when we get into the Revelation 14, 15, 16 area. In Jude, he pronounces, in Jude chapter 1, he pronounces a woe over the people that are following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. In 2 Peter 2, he says that they love the wages of unrighteousness. If there's a group that Jesus hates more than any other, it's the Nicolaitans. Because, listen, when you come at the faith in a straight way and you want to say, I think this is wrong, I don't care about you, God, that's one thing. He can, the face-to-face -face confrontation we can deal with. But the Nicolaitans are subtle and deceiving and devious, and they let you compromise in little ways. It's the way the serpent was when the fall of man happened in Genesis 3. The serpent doesn't come to even say, you should eat the apple because God is wrong. No, what does he say? Has God really said that you shouldn't eat from any, any fruit? Well, no, not any fruit, just not this one. Well, you know, like, the reason he doesn't want you to eat from it is just because you'll know the things he knows if you do. Right? It's subtle. The way the enemy will steer you away from your faith is slow, subtle, steady compromise. Ten years from now, you wake up and you wonder, how did I get here? If you look at the way this country has continuously disintegrated in morality, it's been slow and subtle. Every time something comes up in the culture that is against what we as Christians would believe, what is it? Well, we just want this one thing. Well, if you get this, you're going to want this, 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 and this. Never, just the one thing. And as soon as it gets it, now we're here. We're compromising in ways today as a nation that even the most liberal people in the world, morality-wise, I'm not talking politically, but morality-wise, 10 years ago wouldn't have thought fathomable. It's eroding quick. Because we start with the small ways and we move into the large ones. That's how a church dies, slowly, by a thousand cuts. And if we're not careful, that's how we'll die in the same way. Because compromising leads to destruction and it'll be too late before you know you went there. Right? It's the silent killer of our church. Compromise spirals way more clicky than you ever know. And here's news for you. I don't care how much you compromise with the culture. I don't care what you cave into. If you think if we just allow, if we just kind of compromise with the culture on this one thing, we'll have favor with the world again, you're dead wrong. It'll, they'll never be enough. 
The world out there wants nothing less than the complete demise of the Christian faith. And if you give them one thing, they will take a thousand others. It will never be enough. If you look at church history, you can see over the last hundred years, slowly, every time the church gives an inch, the culture takes a mile. We're called as Christians to say enough. I don't care how much the world hates us. I don't care how much the world comes after us. We will not compromise. We will stand for what Christ calls us to. And we'll stand with an iron fist. Antipas, one of the early writings of the church in the East, one of the, the phrases that is attributed to him is that the people came to him towards the end of his life and they said, Antipas, the whole world is against you. And his response was, well, then I'm against the whole world. And so he fried in a bowl. And now he rests with his Savior in eternity and peace. Because he traded the life he knew wasn't worth it for the one he knew was. The question is, will we do the same? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who comes to us with a sharp, double-edged sword. That we can trust in you. We thank you that when the world hates us, that you proclaim that it hated you first and that we are in good company. And so, Lord, we ask that you might be with us. We ask that you might give us a peace that passes all understanding. And Lord, we ask that more than anything, that you would give us a resolve to live without compromise. That you would remind us of who has us and holds us in the power of his hand. That you would remind us of who loves us and cares for us and who has prepared a place for us that is so much better than this life. Keep us strong. Keep us vigilant. And Lord, we do pray that you would protect us from the evil that is out there. That you would allow us to continue to be your church in this place. That you would protect Stowe Presbyterian churches and those that surround it in our community. That you would allow us and strengthen us and empower us and embolden us to continue to carry out the mission. That we might exist for all the places that worship does not. And Lord, we long for the day when each and every one of us stands next to you, living our truly best life now. Not in this world, in this day, in this age, but in the next. We love you and we praise you. And all God's people said,